0: Okay, let's start back at uh, Genesis chapter 6 just to do a quick bit of refresh and recap. Good job singing there, Jessica. Well done. I like people called Jessica. <laughs> my wife's a Jessica. How, how old are you, Jessica? 14. 14. Okay, my wife's just a couple years long, more than that. Um, my, my wife was once a 14 year old, Jessica in an independent Baptist church. And uh, when she was 14 years old, she didn't know that she would grow up and uh, get married to a uh, pastor in Australia and travel to the far side of the world. Uh, and uh, in the seven years that she spent in Australia, most people would never have uh, even thought about the fact that to a, to a certain extent, my wife became a missionary, although no one ever called her that, but she was. She was serving the Lord in, in a foreign land. Uh, she just happened to have a pastor who was a national pastor. And so most people wouldn't have looked at her in the same way that people will have a special honor and esteem for their missionaries and their missionaries' wives. Most people sort of glossed over that fact uh, with my wife and didn't even really consider that. But um, sometimes people ignore uh, the importance of things like that. Uh, and yet, so far, she has uh, she's doing a great job raising uh, three fine young boys, and now a little wild four-year-old girl. That uh, my four-year-old girl, you'd, you'd have to see her to believe it. She smiles and she lights up the room. But I, I say this: my four-year-old, she is like blowing up a balloon, not tying the knot, and just letting it go. <laughs> Uh, And that's how how she goes. And she's just a little uh, high-energy baby. Um, But my wife is doing a great job uh, raising those boys. They haven't given us any great grief so far in life. I understand my oldest is 17 years old. And there's plenty of times for them to make mistakes along life's way. But we're very hopeful and prayerful that they won't make major mistakes like a lot of young people. And if no other reason they've been brought up with the fear of God they've been brought up with the fear of dad and they have a very healthy fear for mama even though she can't whoop very good with a wooden spoon. Uh, they, they know don't mess with mama. And so uh, you say, why do I even mention that? Because it's important, uh, young people, all of you young people, you have no idea at your age what God has planned for you. Okay? But God might have something big for you. Uh, how, how old are you? Nine. Okay. When I was nine years old, I'm pretty sure that there wouldn't have been an adult in our church that would have said, oh, that kid's going to grow up to be a preacher one day. Uh, When I was nine years old, a lot of people would have said, that boy's going to grow up and make the front page of the newspaper for all the wrong reasons. Uh, And yet, so it's important to, uh, you pay attention during church, enjoy church. You ought to be enjoying yourself, young people. Um, And also, I'll give you, this is a practical thing. This is not a spiritual thing. Uh, Young people, um, don't sit around and watch TV. Get outside and get exercise. Get lots of exercise. And be careful what you stick in your mouth. (laughs) Okay? Just because you're getting away with it while you're young and you're still slim. uh, I did all of that stuff. Uh, I used to think it was hilarious when I was even in my late teens and early 20s. Uh, You think I'm exaggerating. I'm not. I'm telling the truth. I I would... um, I didn't always have a lot of friends in life I, I like. You all think I'm outgoing extroverted. I am not. I am not. Yeah. Being with people drains my battery. I, I enjoy it. There is a reason why I run ultra marathons. I don't see anyone for hours on end. It's wonderful. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm by nature very shy, very introverted, and, and people, people honestly think I'm lying when I say that. And they're like, oh, you're so outgoing. No, I fake it as a means of compensating for how I really feel on the inside. Um, but uh, I would sit down, uh, sometimes when I was young, I would ask all my friends, I love cars. Cars are great things. Um, and I don't like boring cars. I've had some boring cars at the moment. I drive a Toyota 4Runner. It, it's just boring. It's as slow as, as all could be. Uh, you can't go fast around corners in a 4Runner or it'll fall over. Um, Uh, there's nothing exciting about a Toyota 4Runner. They just keep on going. You just change the oil in it when it needs the oil change, and it just runs forever. Um, But I used to like going to watch dirt track sprint cars. Oh, I like dirt. Oh, yeah, God bless you too, sir. Um, Dirt track sprint cars, man, that is where it's at. If you want action and you want noise and you want sound, uh, it's just wonderful, wonderful racing. The sound is good. The smell of the fuel that they burn is, is good and there's dirt and dust flying everywhere. I learned at the sprint cars that the really smart people look like idiots as they're walking in the gate because they have a cardboard box with them. And what they do is they take that cardboard box, they've cut holes in it for the eyes, and they stick the cardboard box over their head, and that way as the cars go past and the clay flies 100 feet in the air and all this clay falls down like a shower of rain, they've just got this cardboard box over them. and, they're, oh, they're not so dumb after all. <laughs> But I would invite my friends and say, who wants to go watch the sprint cars on Saturday night? And No one wanted to go with me, so I would just go by myself. And during the intermission between the racing, I would go to the donut stand. Donuts in Australia are a little different than here. You ever had hot ones, hot donuts that have been dipped in cinnamon and sugar? Oh, it's incredible. I would order a dozen donuts. Yeah, a dozen donuts and a bottle of Coke. And I would sit there and I would eat a dozen donuts and drink a bottle of Coke... And people would say, you shouldn't do that, it's not healthy, it's not, and I, you know what, one of my friends used to say about me when I was younger, he said, he said if you turn sideways and stick your tongue out, you look like a zipper. I was, I was so slim back then, and I thought I was getting away, oh, I'm skinny, I can get away with this. But you know what, there's things inside your body, and you do that while you're young, and you're messing, it, you're messing your body up, even though you're still skinny while you're young, and you'll be paying for it later. And, and God has given you a body, young people. He's given you a body, not just for your sake. He's given you a body so that you can use it in His service. And if you treat it badly while you're young, it's going to hinder your ability to serve the Lord later. Look after what you stick in your mouth. And every time you get tempted to watch TV, don't go outside and run around instead. It'll, it'll help you. That's just a little practical thing. It's got nothing to do with this morning's preaching. <laughs> Uh, Genesis chapter 6, and we're just going to read the one verse uh, by way of review, verse 14. Make thee an ark of gopher wood, rooms shalt thou make in the ark, and shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. And so we're coming back to this thought of uh, pitching it within this morning. Let's have a word of prayer and then get straight into it. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you we can be here in the house of God. Lord, uh, other than the Seventh-day Adventist, there probably aren't too many people in church today. But Lord, I pray that you'll bless the time that we spend here now. I pray that it would be fruitful and worthwhile for everyone that's here. pray that when they're done, that not only would they say they enjoyed the house of God, but Lord, may it change us uh, for the better uh, so that we might be better able to serve you. Lord, I pray you will use the people of this church to reach the lost that are in their lives and within uh, their ability to influence. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, how many, anyone here either uh, from your cell phone or just watching the news on TV this morning? Anyone seen the news this morning? Uh, we're staring down the barrel right now of Israel potentially going to war against the Arabs uh, as, of, as of this morning. Uh, and the Bible tells us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And it's, it's an interesting thing when you think about the peace of Jerusalem. Uh, a lot has to go wrong yet before Jerusalem gets to a place of peace. Uh, God has to, uh, the Bible says that judgment must begin at the house of God. Uh, and he has, a lot of, uh, he has a lot of issues to settle with the people of Israel. So, we're not necessarily, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, understanding that a lot of violence has to take place first. It is sad, uh, but it is a necessary thing. Um, And uh, as Christians, not in a morbid way, not that we are happy at bad things happening to people, but every time things like this happen in Israel, we need to realize lift up your heads for your redemption draweth nigh. Sometimes we think as Christians that we're kind of like, you know, the losers uh, and the Bible talks about us being considered to be the filth and the off scouring of the world. But there comes a day where eventually the tide is turned and we rule and reign. Amen. Uh, we had at, at my home church just a couple of Sunday nights ago, uh, we had the, the Lord's Supper at our church um, And um, one of the things that Jesus said, uh, he talked about the the cup and he said, I'm not going to drink this with you again until I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. And when Jesus rose again from the dead, his spiritual body, I talked briefly about that last night, the natural body and the spiritual body he was resurrected with that would walk through the walls to be with the disciples in that room. That spiritual body, when he rose from the dead, he sat on the seashore and he had a meal with his disciples and ate fish with them there. But there's nothing about that that says that they sat down and had a glass of grape juice to wash the fish down. When Jesus said, I'm not going to drink this anymore until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom, he he meant what he said. And there will come a day. And if you piece a lot of things together in the Bible... Uh, at the second coming of Christ, uh, uh, preacher Dr. Ruckman did an excellent study on this years ago. The Bible talks about, as the lightning flashes from the east to the west, so also shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Uh, and there's a, the Bible gives the impression that Jesus, uh, when he returns, it's almost like he comes, as the Bible says, skipping upon the mountaintops. Uh, and if that's the case, the last one that he skips across on his way into Jerusalem uh, will likely be uh, Mount Calvary and the Mount of Olives before he comes through the east gate. And I think that that might have been spoken about last night. It sounded like it was someone was brother preaching about uh, Jesus coming back through the east gate. And he'll come through that gate. Uh, and the Bible says that it will be shut and will remain shut because it's for the prince. And the prince comes through and he'll go into Jerusalem and he'll go into the temple uh, and he will, uh, I believe that he will sit, uh, the Bible talks about him ruling from his throne. I believe that the actual throne is likely to be the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant that he will sit on. And I don't know the actual day in which this occurs. But in my mind, let's say, let's say for, the sake of, uh, for the sake of fun that maybe he returns uh, in late May one year. Uh, And and if that's the case, in my mind, how many of you understand when Jesus returns and sets foot on this earth, how long he's going to be here for? A thousand years. years. And let's say he returns in late May one year. Uh, I believe that um, there'll be some time, if that's when he returns, I believe the following year, and it might be 10 or 11 months later before this occurs... But eventually Passover rolls around. Uh, And in my mind, uh, piecing all of the scriptures together, that would mean that the millennium begins when Jesus comes back to earth. But they wouldn't celebrate the Passover immediately until the time that it's appropriate to. uh, On the 14th day of the month Abib, which is roughly corresponds to our April Uh, So if he returned in, in maybe May, and then we're waiting 10 or 11 months, but there's something special that's going to happen there one day, and that would be when the Lamb of God is presented as the Passover Lamb. Corinthians calls Jesus Christ our Passover. And can you imagine this? The Bible describes Moses and Elijah as his two witnesses. In my mind, I have this mental picture of Jesus sitting on the mercy seat on that first Passover, the first year of the millennium. And in my mind, he's sitting there and he's got Moses on one side and Elijah on the other. And they're like, not that I'm into uh, the UFC uh, wrestling and that brutal fighting and whatnot. Uh, I, I'm cool with the punching and let's box and punch each other out. I just I can't get much into people choking each other into submission. That's just not for me. Um, but um, the the guy that calls the fight before the fight, and we have over here in one corner. I, I just got this mental picture of Moses and Elijah standing there with these nice deep booming voices introducing the Lord Jesus Christ. One of them saying, and now, for the next 1,000 years, the King of kings and Lord of lords shall rule and reign. And, and then the other one pipes up and he says, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And then the other one says, I'd also like to introduce him to you as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And, and I see that, in my mind, I see the 12 apostles forming a line going away from the throne. And then I see the 12 patriarchs forming a line going away from the throne. And I see the potential, not certain that this is how it all pans out, but I see the potential for Old Testament saints to literally fill the city of Jerusalem. And then outside through those gates, I see the potential for all of the Christians for the last 2,000 years to be lining up in a line, however many rows deep, but forming a line that goes from that east gate out towards and up Mount Calvary, And for Old Testament saints and New Testament saints to celebrate that Passover and the Lord's Supper combined as one single event. People handing out, just like the disciples did with the loaves and the fishes, that they had five loaves and two fishes. And somehow, uh, miraculously, uh, maybe it's the disciples that are out there handing out the bread for the Lord's Supper uh, and the cup. And thousands upon thousands and millions upon millions of Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, tribulation saints celebrate that with the Lord in his kingdom. What a day that would be. What an excitement that would be. The Muslims go every year to uh, to Mecca and they march around and around uh The tomb of their dead prophet, and they get all lathered up and excited over that, over a dead man. But we have the living King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And if that's how it happens, if that's how it happens, it probably concludes the service with, Wasn't that great? Let's do that again every year for the next 999 years. We rule and reign for a thousand years. It's a phenomenal thing. People say, oh, that's all airy, fairy, pie in the sky, science fiction. No, it's Bible reality. Amen. Amen. It's just amazing what our future is. And I say that so that we don't get discouraged because, you know, people just almost casually say, oh, the best is yet to come. You got no idea how good the best that is to come really is. Let's get into the preaching now. That was just some fun there for a minute. All right. We talked last night about um, the 40 days and the 40 nights. That's how long it rained for, right? Uh, And they were told to pitch the ark without to keep the rainwater out of the wood. I think the magic word you used was soggy. The wood would go soggy and it would go soft and eventually it would rot and fall through uh, and break. And so it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. The ark floated around for 150 days before it finally bumped into one of the mountains up in the region of Ararat. Um, and it sits there. And um, it's a long time after it bumps in and starts wedging there in that mountain. But when it rests there at that point and the water continues to go down <coughs> or as the Bible says, assuage anyone know how long it is from the time the ark goes boom and bumps into the mountain and settles there anyone know how long it is before they actually see the land now they've hit land but they can't just lean out over the side of the ark and oh yeah there it is down there it's a long time still before they actually see dry land it's if you wonder how long i mean by that it bumps into Ararat on day 150, but the tops of the mountains isn't, aren't seen until 224 days. So it's another 74 days, 10 and a half weeks before they actually see land again for the first time. Um, and then even after that, the cover isn't removed from the ark. Uh, according to chapter 8 of Genesis, uh, verse 13 until day 313. And then after that, it's still another 53 days before they leave the ark. And all of those numbers, they just sound like numbers, but I want you to think about how long a length of time that is. And, and here's the practical application of that. The pitch it without, that's important for the first 40 days. While the ark is floating. It's important all the way up to day 150 when the ark bumps into Ararat. Sometime between day 150 and day 224 the water has receded enough to the point where the pitching without is no longer relevant because the ark is now dry. But the pitching within continues to be relevant until they've all left. Because as I, as I mentioned briefly last night, why did they pitch the ark within? How many of you young people remember? Why did they put pitch on the inside of the ark? What were they sealing and protecting it against? They, they know it and they don't want to say it. It was all the mess that the animals were making. Is that right? Yeah. All of the mess that the animals were making. And here's what you need to understand. If the pitching without is a picture of us dealing with external fleshly temptations in our lives, then the pitching within is a picture of us dealing with the spiritual temptations in our lives. And I believe the application there is it's important to do both, but by the time you've got the external sorted out there's still a lot of problems on the inside. And it's really, really important for us to understand that just because we've got the external issues figured out and you say, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't fornicate, I don't cuss, you still have a lot of temptations and problems inside your heart and inside your spirit that need to be dealt with. And on those external issues, I really want to clarify something right now. Some of the kids ask, What's this in my pocket? Okay. It's not chewing tobacco. Okay. It's breath mints. It's pretty much the opposite of chewing tobacco. Uh, And I want to just clarify my name is smoker, not chewer. Okay. Um, We can get those external things sorted out real easy, but the internal can be a problem. Let's turn to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. When you think of the word lust, we think of fleshly sins. But that's not always what lusts are. There are lusts that are fleshly. There are lusts that are lusts of the spirit. And there are also, according to the Old Testament, there are also lusts that are lusts of the soul. In the Old Testament, the Jewish people were told at one place uh, that if they couldn't get to Jerusalem uh, all the time to give all of their offerings to the Lord, they were told to sell and buy things. And they were told to buy whatsoever thy soul lusteth after. Which is an interesting thing. But I'm going to talk about uh, some lusts of the Spirit this morning. Uh, one of them in very, in very particular. Uh, James chapter 4 and verse number 5. Do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? The spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy. So I'm going to talk about uh, one of the lusts of a person's spirit that they can have, and that is envy this morning. I'm going to talk to you for a few minutes about envy. Uh, and there's a reason why. It's, it's the primary one that the Bible mentions as being an issue with our spirit. Now, James chapter 4 verse 5 poses a real problem to scholars and people who are Christians who struggle to submit themselves to the authority of the Bible. There are a lot of Christians nowadays that uh, will tell you, oh, I believe the Bible and I do what the Bible says... But then when you ask them what they mean by that, uh, really they don't submit themselves to the scriptures. And they're not all Bible believers Amen. that say that they are. And, and this verse poses a real challenge for them. Because it says there, the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy. And here's what, why this is a problem for scholars and people who think that they're intelligent. There's not a verse anywhere in the Old Testament that says that. And so they look at that and they say, well, that, that can't possibly be right. Now, when a scholar who's not really a Bible believer comes across a verse like that, doesn't understand what they read, but think that they know something, do you know what they inevitably have to do? The scholars, when they look at that verse, they say, James chapter 4 verse 5 couldn't possibly have been in the originals. So someone must have added it later. They called doubt upon the word of God because of their own inadequacy and their own lack of understanding. Just because you don't understand the Bible doesn't give you the right to say that the Bible is wrong. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar. There doesn't have to be a single verse of Scripture that says the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy. If they would submit to the authority of Scripture, they would understand a few things. It doesn't say, do you think that the verse over there, it doesn't say that, it says the Scripture says it. The entire Old Testament is the scripture and the entire Old Testament teaches us that the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy. Do you, know where, do you know where we begin to learn that the spirit that dwells in us lusts to envy? Do you know where we begin to learn that? We learn that in the book of Genesis with two brothers, Cain and Abel. That's where the scripture begins to teach us about the spirit dwelling within us, lusting to envy. The first and most dangerous envy, therefore, that you can have, get this. What was Cain's problem? What was he envious of? Cain bought his offering. Did the Lord accept it? No. Abel bought his offering. Did the Lord accept it? Yes. And I want to tell you here this morning, one of the problems that we have as Christians and even as Bible believers, there can be in us a tendency to become envious of God's blessing in another Christian's life. We should not be envious of that. Do you know what we do? We look at someone else and and we say, oh, their church is bigger than ours or that person, they're more popular than I am. And the reason why is that they are a no good compromiser, and we do that in order to bring them down so that we can exalt ourselves up. See, they've got a church of a thousand because they're a compromiser, and I don't because I'm the own. I even I only am life left, and they seek my life to take it, and that's the biggest load of nonsense you ever did here. Uh, God doesn't have to do things the way that you think that he has to do things. I think it was Vance Havner who said, God refuses to run his big train on my little train track. Uh, And I like that. Uh, Elijah, at one point in the Bible, got all pious and spiritual and he said, I, even I, only am left and they seek my life to take it. And the Lord basically said to him, not in these exact words, the Lord basically said to him, you need to just shut up. I've got 7,000 men that have not bowed the knee to Baal. And if you ask Elijah, if you told Elijah who those 7 men were, he'd say, "Well, that one over there, some of his music just doesn't line up with our standards." And I've seen that guy over there. I've seen him preach without wearing a tie. Can you believe that? <laughs> and then another one might and then Elijah might say about that other one, "Well, you know that guy over there, He had a show and shine of old cars in his church parking lot in order to draw in the crowds. And I just don't think that we should use worldly means to draw people into the house of God. And Elijah could have been critical of all 7,000 of those people. They didn't meet Elijah's standards, but they did meet God's standards. And I tell you, it's not about our standards. We call it our standard, but if you boil it all down, it's envy. And we've got to get past that point. Do you realize you don't have to agree with every other Christian brother, but still be able to get along with that Christian brother without being a compromiser? There's so many quote-unquote different camps amongst us today, and we can't all go camping together. And it's a bit sad. Not just in my opinion, but it's a bit sad according to the way that the Lord looks at things. Turn to Acts chapter 7. The next great case of envy throughout the Old Testament scripture. You say, Acts isn't in the Old Testament. You learn about the Old Testament from Acts. Acts chapter 7 and verse number 8. Talking about Abraham, that God gave him, Abraham, he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begat Isaac and circumcised him the eighth day. And Isaac begat Jacob and Jacob begat the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him. Aren't you glad about that? God was with him. Can I tell you something? Your brethren will sell you down the road sometimes. They'll lie about you, they'll say all kinds of nasty things about you, and and it doesn't it doesn't matter what they say if God is with you. Okay? You, You gotta be willing, you gotta be willing to just let some things slide. You don't have to confront every situation head on. If someone lied about you, could you just keep your mouth shut? And could you pray and say, Lord, I don't even want to bring this up with this brother. Can you just deal with him about that? Yes. That would take some humility and that's all too much for some of us sometimes. Verse number 10, it says that God delivered him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. So firstly, you can be envious That God is happy with your brother. Secondly, you can be envious of earthly blessings and favor. You see, they were envious of the fact that their father, Israel, over all of the twelve sons, he had favored towards Joseph. And he proved that favor with that coat of many colors. And he had been uh, in a favorable position. He was more popular. And he had been more... Blessed, amen. And that just that just didn't sit well with the other eleven. Can you imagine the conversations that those eleven had without Joseph? Mm -hmm. If Dad knew what we knew about Joseph, he wouldn't be giving him a coat of many colors every year. Matter of fact, Dad'd be taking him to the woodshed, and Dad'd be whooping him. If Dad only knew all of the things that we do. That Joseph doesn't do. Uh Aha. Envy. Envy. And they sold him. They literally sold him down the road. Into Egypt. But because God was with him. And what a man Joseph was. Because decades later. Joseph never built bitterness in his heart. Against their envy. And. You know what the Bible says in Genesis, he looked at his brothers, he says, as for you, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, to save much people alive. The next case in the Bible of envy, the great case of envy in the Old Testament, turned to 1 Samuel chapter 18. Uh, And as you turn there, I'll I'll just give you a truth here this morning, not not to shame anyone, just tell you the truth. Some of the most envious of all of God's people are the preachers. They really are. I get tired of hearing one preacher running down another preacher. And if you boil it all down, the only reason they're doing it is because they're envious of something about that preacher. Either he's more popular or he's more successful. Do you realize that some preachers are envious of each other's talents that they have? Don't ever be envious of another preacher's talents. God gave that to him. Say, well, God didn't give me five talents. God only gave me two talents, or God only gave me one talent. If you spend less time focusing on His five and more time on investing your two or your one wisely, you'll still be well rewarded for it. 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse number 7. And the women answered one another as they played and said, Saul hath slain his thousands. If all they did was sing the verse and not sing the chorus, everything would have been fine. But they didn't. They had to sing the chorus as well. Saul was happy when he hears this. Saul has slain his thousands. He's like, yes, I have. And then then David has slain his ten thousands. And Saul's like, no, he didn't. He just slayed one man. He just slayed Goliath. That's all he did. But for day after day after day and month after month after month, Goliath had come out and he'd said, send me a man. And Saul had his opportunity. Don't ever be envious of what other people have done and how God has used other people when you haven't taken your shot. God's given you opportunity to do something. The real problem is not what someone else is doing. The real problem is why aren't we doing what we can There's a hymn, a very convicting hymn in our hymnal. By and by, when I look on his face, I wish I had given him more. I wish I'd focused less on what others were doing or weren't doing and more on what I could have done. And David has slain his ten thousands. And verse 8 says that Saul was, it doesn't just say Saul was wroth. Saul was very wroth. And the saying displeased him. And he said they've ascribed unto David ten thousands And to me they have ascribed but thousands. And what can he have more but the kingdom? That was one of the, one of these days I'll preach a sermon on the dumbest things that men have ever said. Because the Bible says, by thy words thou shalt be justified and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. And when Saul said that, what more can he have but the kingdom? It was like the Lord was in heaven saying, well funny you should ask that Saul because he's having the kingdom now. He's getting it. And Saul, verse 9, Saul eyed David, from that day and forward. What was Saul's job at that time? What was he? It's not a trick question, it's an easy question. What was Saul? He was the king. From everything that we know about Israel in those days, the population of Israel was measured in the, in the, in the realms of a few million people. As king, it was his God-given responsibility to look after and take care of millions of people. And he neglected millions of people that he was supposed to be taking care of to focus on one and only one man that he was envious of. I promise you that if you allow envy to start eating up your spirit, You will focus on one person that you are envious about or against and you will neglect people that you love and you will neglect people that you are responsible for and God will hold you accountable for it. You had better focus on what God has given you rather than what God has given someone else. Verse 10. And it came to pass on the morrow that the evil spirit from God came upon Saul. Fascinating theology there. <laughs> An evil spirit from God. You how many of you understand that the Bible says that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh? Calvinists love that. <laughs> oh yes. Yeah, I mean he was reprobate from the beginning. God hardened his heart, and it wasn't even, wasn't even the king of Pharaoh, it wasn't even Pharaoh's decision to harden his heart. God did it to him. No. Pharaoh's heart had already gone in that direction and God said, if that's the way you want to go, I'll I'll give you some momentum. And that's all that's happening here. Saul already had an evil spirit and the Lord looked at him and said, if that's the way you want to go, I'll I'll help you in the direction you want to go. Uh, The evil spirit from God came upon Saul and he prophesied in the midst of the house and David played with his hand as other times. And there was a javelin in Saul's hand. And Saul cast the javelin for he said, I will smite David even to the wall with it. And David avoided out of his presence twice. That's envy. It is not a physical sin. It is a sin of the spirit. And it's a dangerous sin Because it's on the inside, it can't be seen from the outside, and you can deny it. But just like God bought the animals, or God told Noah to bring the animals onto the ark two by two, so envy can come into our heart as well, like an animal. Can I tell you something about animals? Animals are interesting. Not all animals are the same. They're not. Anyone that has a cat knows that cats can be fairly well trained. A cat has a little litter box, right? And generally speaking, when a cat needs to make a mess, the cat will normally make a mess in its litter box, right? Most dogs don't do that. Okay? Ours does. We've got one that's that's trained. We have a a closed-in back deck in our house, and they have like a little six-foot-wide by four-foot-wide like a little, that plastic grass, a little mat sort of thing, and that's where our, our poodle makes, makes use of that mat. But a lot of dogs, you, you can't train to be that way. Some animals, there are some animals, you can't train them at all. They're going to make a mess where they make a mess. <laughs> uh, and that's how it is with some people's spirits. Some people, their spirit can be trained to make a mess in some places. Some people are just going to show up and throw up and they're going to make a mess wherever they make some Christians are like, I just don't care what. I'm going to give them a piece of my mind whether they like it or not. Blah, 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 blah. You know what that is? That's an untrained animal that's just going to make a mess wherever, and they do all kinds of harm in a church. But some people have the same spirit of envy, but their animal's a little better trained. Some people don't make the mess until they get in their car on the way home from church. Blah, 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 blah. It's the same mess. You just put it in the litter box of your car rather than all over the house. It's still a mess. Uh, By the way, um, some animals can be trained to eat certain things and not other things. And some animals, good luck training them what not to eat. I was saying last night to a couple of the brothers, we got a poodle. I was so surprised when my wife bought a dog because my wife has not been a dog person all her life. But she thought, we'll get a dog for the sake of the boys. The first time the dog ate a needle, it cost us $2,500 to have the needle taken out of the dog uh, with this big surgery. And the dog just continues to stick all kinds of dumb things in its mouth and swallow them. Gardening gloves. How can you get a gardening glove down your throat and into your stomach? But our dog did. Our little four-year-old girl, she had these cute little um, uh, pepper pig gardening gloves. And all of a sudden, one day, there was only one more Peppa Pig gardening glove. <laughs> I'm like, oh no, yeah. And we're waiting for Peppa Pig to come back out. And for day after day after day, Peppa Pig didn't come out. And the dog's hardly eaten any real food because it's got Peppa Pig gardening gloves inside it. And we're thinking, eventually it's got to come out or we're going to have to go to the vet and pay another couple of hundred, uh, not hundred thousand, it feels like that, another couple of thousand dollars to have Peppa Pig removed from the dog's tummy. And then eventually one day the dog, and we're like, oh good, good, good. We're not bad at this point. It's not bad, the dog's like, here comes Peppa Pig. And all of a sudden, there's Peppa Pig. Been in there for a week. That's disgusting, isn't it? But you know what? God looks at our envy, God looks at our envy, and, and God talks about that, you know, the dog returning to its own vomit. He looks at things like envy in us, and God looks at it and says, that's disgusting what they're up to, I can't believe they're envious of each other. They're supposed to be brothers, they're supposed to be rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that do weep. Uh, And can I say that the wrong things will eventually come out if the wrong things are going in. So let's make sure we're not putting the wrong things into our spirit because then less bad stuff is going to come out. We have not just an animal inside of our ark. I've just talked about the animal of envy. But we have the animal of pride Within us, sometimes we can have the animal, the Bible talks about the animal of bitterness. That's a dangerous, dangerous, wild animal. Bitterness. Bitterness is a wild animal you never quite know when it's going to lash out at somebody and hurt them and injure them. Let's turn to Proverbs chapter 16 and I'll be finished this morning. Proverbs chapter 16. What are we going to do about our spirit of envy or bitterness or hatred or anger or any of those spiritual things, those animals that are inside our ark making a mess? What are we going to do about them? When God made Adam and Eve and put them in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 1, He told them about the birds of the air and the fishes of the sea and the animals that live upon the ground. What did God God tell Adam to do with those things? He said, subdue the earth and have dominion over them. And in the same way that God didn't say, kill all the animals... He said, have dominion over them. What does that mean? The person who has dominion is the person who has control. They're the one who rules. And look at Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 32. And this is God's advice to us. He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh a city god wants us not just to say well i just i just you know i'm a pa- you know people excuse the sins of their spirit real easy a person who's prone to anger will excuse it by saying well i'm just a passionate person it's my fiery italian blood <laughs> right we'll make excuses for the sins of our spirit you won't hear a Christian who has a problem with the lust of the eyes towards people of the opposite gender. You won't hear him justify that and say, well, I'm just a red-blooded man. I just like to look at the ladies. You're not going to hear Christians say that, but you'll hear them say about their, about their angle. Well, I'm just. that's just how I am. That's my heritage. That's what my people do. We shouldn't do that. When we understand that we have sins in our spirit, we are supposed to, just like Adam and Eve, we're told to have dominion over the animals. We have animals of sin problems in our spirit. They're inside our ark. And God says, you'd better learn to rule your spirit. Uh, And that's what my admonition to you would be today. Let's get serious about those Spirit problems that we have within us, those animals inside of us, let's not justify them, let's not excuse them, because my experience and observation is this that whilst there are many problems hurting many Christians and getting many people out of church and out of God's will for their life, um, the sins of the flesh are not doing as much harm as the sins of the spirit, but we are so, so good at living in denial. Of those sins of the Spirit. I honestly think... uh, I know that it happens to me. Now, this is a pulpit. This is not a confessional booth. Okay? Uh, And we're not supposed to confess our sins one to another because we're Bible believers, but the Bible does say we're supposed to confess our faults. Okay? You know what a fault is? A fault... If you think of a fault line... In the ground. It's an inherent flaw or weakness that can crack at a moment's notice. We have those. You know what I'm prone towards? I tell you, I'm prone to everything I just preached about this morning, envy. Thursday this coming week, I'm being interviewed for a job that I've already heard from one of the directors in my company is going to be given to another person. I, I was so mad when I heard that. Rather than come up to my own... You know what my immediate, my immediate thought was? I'm not even going to submit an application. That'll teach him. <laughs> What's that all saying? How, what percentage of shots did you miss that you never took? 100%. And so I talked to a few people that weren't, they didn't have my passion and my anger and my envy towards the fact that this job's going to be given to someone else. And I talked to a few more calm and level-headed people and said, here's the situation, they're going to give the job to Brian. Uh, They've already made their mind up and I haven't even interviewed for it yet, what do you think I should do? And, uh, And I talked to my old boss, he's not even a Christian, and he said, you know what? He said, if you don't even apply for it, he says, you don't even have any right of recourse. You can't go to your boss and say, hey, man, it was a foregone conclusion. I already knew it. He said, you need to put your hat in the ring. And I'm like, I don't want to. And he said, well, then don't ask for my opinion. <laughs> I'm like, ah, good point. I did pick up the phone and call you, didn't I? <laughs> so you know what I did instead? I sent in my application. And not only did I send in my application... I wrote to my boss and I wrote to the vice president of human resources and I said, I am so glad that you asked me to apply for this position. I said, because as you know, I've worked hard for this company for three years now. And I made, I made it clear from the outset that one day I wanted to be the director of the pre-sales team. So I'm really excited about being able to apply for it. You say, was I lying? No, I'm really excited about being able to apply for it. I don't expect I'm going to win it. But you know what I've had to do? I've already had to make up my mind in my heart that if the foregone conclusion is right, and if Brian gets the job rather than me, I just need to be happy and say, all right, that's okay. Don't be envious. Why, why should I be, by the way, why should I be mad at it? You guys don't know who Brian is. Why should I be mad at Brian? Why should I be mad at him? Because someone else prejudged the situation and said the job's going to Brian. It's not, that's not Brian's fault. And by the way, it's beyond my ability to control them. I can't control Brian. I can't control Brandon, the man who's already made the decision. You know who I can control? Ben. And I need to have a right attitude about it. And I need to rule my spirit. By the way, Brandon's not a Christian. Brian's not a Christian. How good is it? If Ben comes along after he doesn't get the job and pulls the pin out of the hand grenade and says, Well, I did I'm not doing any good for anyone. You know who needs to learn to rule their own spirit? I do. You know who else needs to learn to rule their own spirit? You do. We all, we all have a problem with the animal within.